Is the mic working? Yeah. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nancy Ruttenberg, and on behalf of the Department of Comparative Literature here at NYU, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's panel discussion on the politics of translation. We're especially happy to be sponsoring this event with the Pan American Center. Not only is the Department of Comparative Literature privileged to have on staff a number of distinguished translators, but we regularly offer undergraduate and graduate courses on both the practice and the theory of translation. In fact, it's difficult to imagine anything more fundamental to the discipline of comparative literature than translation. Its complexities surface in every aspect of our work from the most practical and programmatic to the most speculative. The aim of translation is to make unfamiliar experiences and meanings available across languages, cultures, and nations. And at a time when we find ourselves exceptionally aware of how much depends on the successful global transmission of such culturally distinct and therefore elusive meanings, we're especially fortunate to be present at tonight's conversation about the politics of translation. To get us started, I'd like to present Joel Canero, president of Penn and an NYU PhD, I've just learned, who will say a few words about the Penn Translation Initiative. Joel Canero recently completed his tenure as president of the Guggenheim Foundation and is the former chairman of the National Book Foundation. His publications include books on William Carlos Williams and John Berriman, essays and reviews, and two anthologies, one of which, Six American Poets, was the main selection of the Book of the Month Club. In previous incarnations, he's been a Guggenheim Fellow, Chairman of the English Department and Dean of Arts and Sciences at Penn, Executive Director of the Modern Language Association and Editor of PMLA, and, lest you persist in thinking he's under-credentialed, he has chaired juries for the Pulitzer Prizes in Fiction and Poetry, the National Book Award in Fiction, and the Irish Times International Fiction Prize. Please join me in welcoming Joel Canero. Oh, thank you, Professor Ruttenberg. She's obviously Googled me. <laughs> I want to thank, too, the Comparative uh, Literature Department here at NYU for joining forces with Penn and making this extraordinary panel possible. I must say, when I got my PhD here, there wasn't this clean, well-lighted room with a view. But it didn't matter. I'd just gotten out of the Army. And being in New York, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <clears throat> NYU is a wonderful place. And uh, I, I salute you. I also want to welcome all of you, friends of the translated world, and congratulate you for being here on any given night. As you know, there are a hell of a lot of things going on in New York, plus the Yankees on TV. But uh, I think you'll agree with me that this is the place we all want to be tonight. And I'm certainly glad to be here. Um, while I have your ear, let me remind you of three forthcoming events that Penn is involved in. One is on, um, let's see, on the, the 25th of September, the poetry of Pablo Neruda with some wonderful people involved like uh, Galway Canal and uh, uh, Edward Hirsch and Philip Levine and others. And then on September 25th, there's a program on censorship uh, in Bryant Park, and wonderful people involved there, too. For example, Francis Fitzgerald, uh, Arthur Miller, Rick Moody, Grace Paley, and stay tuned, you'll hear more about these. And then a wonderful tribute to Gabriel Garcia Marquez on the 5th of uh, November in Town Hall. 
Now, when I, I look at this audience, I realize that I'm probably singing to the choir when I say something about um, something of a scandal in the, the world of translation. But I got some statistics from our indefatigable executive director, Mike Roberts, and Mike, I salute you. Um, let me just very briefly share some of these. In many countries, translation typically occupies up to 45% of all books published annually. And using 1999 as a typical year, in the United States, only about 1% of all books published were translated into English. And of that 1%, uh, almost all of them from European authors, very, very few from South American authors, and not a single book translated in 1999 was the work of a writer from sub-Saharan Africa. So when the, world, when the world is more interdependent than ever before, Americans are more ignorant than ever before uh, of other languages and cultures. And it's not surprising that an editor at Oxford University Press was heard to say, everything seems to take Americans by surprise. <clears throat> Susan Sontag, my dear friend, has described translation as the circulatory system of the world's literature. And Esther Allen, another dear friend, tonight's moderator, extended the metaphor by observing that since English is increasingly the lingua franca, uh, America's lassitude with respect to translation has made us the clogged artery that prevents authors from reaching readers anywhere outside their own country. Well, Penn, from his founding, has embraced a special mission to support translation and defend linguistic rights. Now, what I've just said is a little bit gloomy. I've loved that word ever since I went to a commencement address at Dartmouth by Joseph Brodsky, who gave a very dark talk, at the end of which he said, some of you may think this talk was gloomy. If so, you don't know gloomy. <laughs> <clears throat> well, now I want to say something that's not gloomy, but that is so exhilarating, so exciting, so wonderful, so spirit-lifting that all of us involved in Penn are absolutely walking on air. And that is this. Thanks to a remarkably generous, anonymous friend who is so anonymous, I don't even know who he or she is, but if he or she is here, thank you, thank you. Thanks to this anonymous friend, we're now in a position to take some tangible steps to redress the scandalous imbalance in cultural commerce, a gift of more than $700,000. And I want to say that again just because I love saying it. $700,000 uh, will initiate an endowment fund to support the translation of foreign literary works in English. And in addition to these translations, it will also permit Penn to work much more effectively to call attention to this problem and to seek to raise additional resources to address it. So Penn and all readers who care about the ideals of culture, cultural exchange for which it stands owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to this marvelous unknown person. And it's now my privilege to introduce here and now the program which is called the Penn Program in International Translation. So I say we're all feeling very, very good about this and I hope you are too. Well, finally, I don't hesitate to read all good books and translations, Walf Raldo, Walf, Waldo Emerson uh, wrote. What is really best in any book is translatable, any real insight or broad human sentiment. Virginia Woolf, however, said, humor is the first of the gifts to perish in a foreign tongue. 
And yet at a cocktail party, a woman ran up to James Thurber, raved about his work, and said, you know, it's even funnier in French than in English. <laughs> and Thurber agreed. He said, yes, you know, I always seem to lose something in the original. <laughs> Well, it's my pleasure now to introduce Esther Allen, who never loses anything either in the original or anywhere else. If you will see um, on your program, um, Esther is chairman of our translation committee. She's been a member for many years. She's translated more than a dozen books from Spanish and French, including most recently the Penguin Classic uh, anthology of the work of Jose Marti, which she edited, annotated, and translated, um, a book that she co-translated um, about Borges, uh, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism, and, well, if you Google her, you'll find out a lot more, too. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to, to be here with all of you to welcome this absolutely marvelous uh, panel and to uh, welcome Esther, our moderator. Thank you, Joel, and um, thank you, Nancy Rettenberg, also. Um, as, as Joel just mentioned, he alluded to the word gloomy. Um, discussions of translation in the United States do, unfortunately, tend to be quite gloomy, and with some reason. Uh, Cliff Becker of the National Endowment for the Arts has for several years now been talking about our national translation crisis, which was reflected in the recent New York Times article uh, headlined, America Yawns at Foreign Fiction. Um, that article included a statement by a publisher, a university press, no less, that they're cutting back on translations because translations are not economically viable. Now, it's extremely unlikely that any US publisher would ever go on record saying that they were no longer going to publish women writers or African or Asian American writers or even Australian writers because work by such writers is not economically viable. And were any publisher to say such a thing, we can imagine the outcry that would ensue and the suspicions that the economic disclaimer would arouse. Um, but when a publisher announces they'll be cutting back on or ceasing to do translations, thereby excluding 80% of the world's population from their list at one stroke, no one protests. And no one voices any suspicion at all about their motives. Uh, there doesn't seem to be anything politically incorrect about it at all. Uh, why is that? Um, I'm hoping that tonight's stellar panel will have some answers to that question. Um, but as Joel said, uh, for once, we have no reason to digress into gloom this evening and every reason to celebrate. Uh, the community of people who support translation in the United States, many of whom are gathered here tonight, uh, there's as many stellar people in the audience or more as, as there are in the panel, it's a gr an incredible group. Um, has been given an extraordinary gift, which has the potential to make an extraordinary difference. And there's a particular historic precedent for this kind of support for translation that will give you an idea of just what such a program can and has achieved in the United States within the last half century. It's called the Latin American boom. Um, as many of you know, in the 1950s, even the idea of Latin American literature barely existed in the United States. Alistair Reed discovered this midway through the decade when he tried to interest four different US publishers in an Argentine writer named Jorge Luis Borges, who was already well known in France, and was told by all four that not only were they uninterested in Borges, they were uninterested in any publishing, in publishing any Latin American writing whatsoever. When Alexander Coleman, a beloved figure at NYU's Spanish and Comparative Literature Department who passed away uh, just a few months ago and who was my professor when I was a grad student here, 
Um, when he was doing his graduate work in the late 1950s at Harvard, the Harvard Spanish Department offered one single course in Latin American literature. That was it. Um, obviously, many factors contributed to the emergence of the boom writers in the late 1960s, not least of which was Fidel Castro's communist revolution in 1959, which focused U.S. attention on Latin America as it had never before been focused. However, one of the more decisive of those factors was the establishment by David Rockefeller of the Center for Inter-American Relations, which for 15 years, beginning in 1967, provided grants that funded the translation of more than 70 books. In 1970, a $5,000 grant from the center paid for the translation of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. The boom successfully created, for the first time, a sphere of Latin American literary culture that was shared with the United States. While the ultimate political effects of that are hard to calculate, I think we can easily agree that we're all better off with such a shared literary culture than we were without it. Um, at the very inception of the Penn Program for Literary Translation, I can only begin to imagine the kinds of shared cultural spheres that it might open up for us. I think of the boom, and I have high hopes. Um, and now, I really, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce a, an extremely stellar group of panelists who, who require no introduction, actually, but will be introduced nonetheless. Um, uh, at the far end of the table to my left is Amiel Alcalay. Um, I actually do not know how many languages Amiel translates from. Uh, Hebrew, Serbo-Croatian, Bosnian, Spanish. Um, I'm sure that there are many more languages that could be added to that list. Uh, and he was one of the people who um, sort of first let me know how hard it can be to be a translator because uh, one of the first times I met him, he was talking about an anthology of uh, Sephardic writing that he published called The Keys to the Garden. And he explained to me that before he could actually publish that anthology of translation, he had to, had to publish extensive scholarly work in order to create the space that, that would then permit a translation to exist. Uh, first of all, he had to envisage you know, this sphere, and then translated work could be inserted into it. Um, he is a poet, critic, translator, scholar, and activist, and his very latest books include From the Warring Factions and a translation of uh, Nine Alexandrias by Semizdin Mehmedinovic, uh, which is translated from the Bosnian. Um, next in line is Michael Hoffman, who has published four collections of poetry and um, a collection of book reviews titled Behind the Lines, which came out from Faber and Faber in 2002. Um, Michael has also done, uh, all those of us who are interested in, in 20th century literature, an enormous service by dedicating a good 15 years of his existence to translating, at this point the total is what, nine or 10 books by Joseph Roth, <laughs> and, um, which is uh, the recreation of a writer's opus in another language and simultaneously the introduction of an extremely major 20th century figure, um, which we all have to be unbelievably grateful for. Um, Joseph Roth certainly was extremely unfortunate in life, but I think in death he had the very good luck of falling into the hands of Michael Hoffman. Um, next is Steve Wasserman, who is currently the editor of the LA Times Book Review, which has such a stellar uh, record of, of publishing reviews of translations that uh, the 
board of the American Literary Translators Association was actually moved to write Steve a letter last year, basically just thanking him for his services to translation. Um, Steve also has a, a long history as an editor um, at Times Books and prior to that at Noonday Press and various other places. Um, to my uh, right is Susan Sontag, who really requires no introduction whatsoever. Um, but I, what I want to say about Susan Sontag is uh, that um, in, in a time when uh, leading American intellectuals seem to have forgotten or, or abandoned the idea that their role might include the introduction of work from other languages into English, Susan has consistently and persistently throughout her career been absolutely tireless uh, in bringing new writing into English and promoting it, in seeing that it gets translated, in seeing that it gets reviewed. Uh, the number of writers that we owe to her uh, is it just, uh, I can't even begin to think of what it might be. Uh, most recently, I feel a very great debt because she was so instrumental in bringing the work of the great late Max Sebald, W.G. Sebald, to our attention. Um, she's also the author of four novels, a collection of short stories, and several works of nonfiction, the most recent of which is Regarding the Pain of Others. And she received the 2001 Jerusalem Prize for her body of work. And I suspect that you'll be hearing uh, over the course of the evening several allusions to an article about translation titled Translation as a Passport Within the Community of Literature, which appeared in the TLS in June, and actually then gave rise to a very interesting sequence of letters um, which you also might hear about. Um, and finally, at the other end of the table is Michael Henry Heim. I do know how many languages he translates from. The number is nine. <laughs> and uh, he also teaches in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures and Comparative Literature at UCLA. Uh, his translation of Chekhov's major plays has just been published by Random House. And uh, one of the uh, translations that I'm most indebted to him for is a novel that was very overlooked called The Book of Blam, which came out uh, what, three years ago, four years ago, um, and which was a tremendous novel by a Serbo-Croatian writer named Alexander Tishma, exactly, uh, set in uh, Novi Sad and written before the American bombs hail rained down on it uh, with a degree of prescience that's extraordinary. I, I strongly recommend it to all of you. and. Uh, it's one of the many uh, existing proofs of Michael's extraordinary dedication to translation. Um, so now each of our panelists will, uh, will say a few words, and then we will have a discussion among the panelists, and then we'll open it up to the floor. So we'll start. Uh, we're, we're going um, uh, which, whichever you prefer, I guess. Yeah. So we'll do it alphabetically, and then you can either remain seated or uh, go to the podium. Uh, is it what do you, is it better if I'm up there? Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. So we'll start with Amiel. I'll um, We've been asked to speak for about ten minutes. I'll try to keep myself to that. Um, I, I thought it might be appropriate to start with a translation with a poem by uh, the Bosnian poet Samezdin Mehmedinovic, uh, and it's one of the rare writers uh, who've come to this country and grasped something very fundamental about it fairly quickly. This is a poem called Open Dialogue. What are you reading? 
This, by the way, takes place on a train crossing the country uh, sometime after September 11th, 2001, about a week or two after. Open dialogue. What are you reading? Poems by Jalaluddin Rumi, a poet born in Afghanistan. Where are you from? Bosnia. Serbs and Croats, right? Is anyone else there? There are others. What color are your eyes? Green till Colorado. But since we passed Apache Canyon, they're blue in the New Mexico light. So then what kind of Muslim are you? White. Um, excuse my, I forgot my reading glasses, so I may have to struggle a little with this. Uh, we tend to talk about translation in a very narrow context, comparing, for example, how few translations get done in this country as opposed to most other places in the world with similar or even fewer resources. Such an approach, an approach can buttress the idea that translations ultimately get done because of cultural importance or literary quality. Although this may occasionally be the case, it usually isn't. Texts that manage to break through the policing of our monolingual borders still only provide a mere taste fragmented out of context of, the, of what such works might represent in their own cultures, languages, historical and political contexts. A single novel or book of poems by a single writer removed from the cluster of other writers and artists from which it has emerged without correspondence, biographies, gossip, debates, or critical studies, more often than not just reinforces our uniquely military-industrial new critical approach to the work of art as an object of contemplation rather than as part of a dense social, political, cultural, and historic fabric. In other words, like so many other things in this country, we tend to talk about translation as if it was removed from either personal or collective politics, an approach that unfortunately reminds me of Paul Wolfowitz's recent comments in Iraq. You can't build a democracy like you build a house, Mr. Wolfowitz said over tea, honey pastries, and water buffalo cheese. Democracy grows like a garden. If you keep the weeds out and water the plants and you're patient, eventually you'll get something magnificent. The fact is that like any commodity, texts cross various borders, checkpoints, holding pens, and tariff stations along the way. And these are both internal and external. The picket lines we dare not cross in our own consciousness and imagination and the very real political barriers that exist in the world. There are reasons why, for example, more translations from Hebrew are published by American publishers than translations from Arabic, despite the fact that there is only one, only one very small partially Hebrew-speaking country, while there are more than a dozen larger Arabic-speaking countries in the world. Those reasons can lead to great confusion and misplaced emphasis, as when a prominent book reviewer can write, as one did recently in a major magazine, without debate or comment, something like this. Quote, choices and consequences are thrust upon the Israeli writer David Grossman, whether he wants them or not. There isn't a more interesting novelist in the West today, Un end of quote. Given that Israel situated along the Syrian-African rift is actually in Asia, there is certainly geographical confusion, and one also wonders whether the choices and consequences thrust upon the Israeli novelist are of the same magnitude as those thrust upon writers living slightly to the southwest or slightly to the north, like former political prisoners Sonala Ibrahim in Egypt or Faraj Birkadar in Syria, or for that matter, a neighbor in Palestine like Mahmoud Darwish, to mention only some. Since the events of September 11th, opposition 2001, oppositional voices in this country have mostly been concerned with exposing, publicizing, or drawing attention to what they 
are doing at home, in Iraq, occasionally even in Afghanistan and other places. But very little energy has been spent on examining how we got to this point and whether we might take some individual and collective intellectual and political responsibility for it. Translation, it seems to me, and engagement with other parts of the world is a crucial aspect of this responsibility. But the American system presents some real obstacles that must be thought through and struggled against on a number of fronts. We all know more or less, as we've heard already tonight, the saga of the consolidation and conglomeration of commercial publishing and the fact that we would hardly have any intellectual or literary life at all worth speaking of were it not for small independent presses. We are a little more reticent to examine the function editing has as a form of censorship that enforces social and political assumptions and silences, the kind of editing, for instance, that allows an Israeli novelist to be, quote, Western, unquote. As far as translation and politics go, the freer space of independent publishing presents a whole other set of problems as well. On the literary side, we tend to privilege texts that seem formally innovative at the expense of texts that might appear more conventional, but which might emerge from a more radical political consciousness. This creates a kind of two-tiered set of literary neighborhoods in which there are ethnic or political ghettos and experimental or sophisticated downtowns. It is very difficult, as we also know, for translators to make a living without doing commercial work. This makes it almost impossible for small presses, those who actually do the work, to support the translation of non-literary texts, since literary texts are often taken on by passionate writers and can occasionally even be supported by grants. In order to understand how crucial this element of the whole issue is, we have to consider the structures through which we sanction and legitimize knowledge, i.e. the university system and its growth and disciplinary arrangement during the Cold War. To put it bluntly, the Western European languages remain, remain the domain of legitimate culture, the Western tradition, while most other languages and the area studies accompanying them were either completely exotic or functioned as an arm of the State Department or the CIA. The general abdication of responsibility by writers and independent intellectuals over other languages and parts of the world helped create a vacuum that could be occupied by experts and become a breeding ground for, at worst, disinformation and, at best, mythology. Thus, we have gotten to the point where a theory that was pretty much ignored or discounted, like Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, has come to determine our understanding of the world, whether for or against. The extent to which this is true for things relating to the Middle East, one of the areas that I'm heavily involved in, is astonishing. And the massive failure and acquiescence on the part of American intellectuals, a true lack not just of responsibility but of response on the human, creative, historical and political levels to the Arab world, Palestine, sanctions against Iraq and so many other issues, has allowed ideologues and apologists to occupy disproportionate amounts of cultural and political space. Again where even popular scholarly texts about the Arab world generally available from other parts of the world, the occupation of this space would have to be struggled for and not simply handed over. So what I'm saying is there is a need, a real need, for greater activism and advocacy by writers of the kind that Esther mentioned, Susan Sontag has been involved in, and all of us, I think, in different ways. Um, this means following and reporting on things happening in other languages, in other countries, demanding to review books in other languages, advocating for the appearance of other writers, in short, giving up some of our own space to make room for others. Um, just give me a second. Um, 
Yeah, uh, in closing, in, as I close, I'd like to point out uh, one of the great ironies about operating as a translator, writer, critic, one of the, that Esther slightly alluded to in this mass media society, is that it has become very clear to me through many years of experience working in and on different languages and different kinds of texts, that in order for translated works to be effective in this country, for them not to become a disposable item quickly consumed, they must challenge those writers who are, in effect, the custodians of our language. By this, I generally mean the poets who constitute the real mainstream of our poetic language, but who have been relegated to the margins in terms of recognition and readership. And it's interesting, in terms of the boom, one of the first translations done was of Julio Cortázar by Paul Blackburn, the great poet. Um, um, yeah, just finishing here. Yeah. Because of this, I've often preferred to work with small presses where I know a book will reach certain kinds of writers and readers. This strategy of finding the deepest influence through the smallest point of access becomes even more important when war or political oppression becomes the template through which we process translated writing. In these cases, as translators, we risk becoming collaborators, and not in the good sense, by bringing texts that resonated with absolute meaning in their original context into a world of indifference or even hostility. Because of this, I think we have to seek poetic strategies that will help insulate such texts and attempt to reenact some of the conditions of, of urgency that accompanied their original appearance. My own sense of this is that living as we are in the heart of the empire and using a language of such dominance, we must discover new ways to both renounce and take up power. The insularity of American intellectual life presents very real political problems, and writers have a crucial role to play in disturbing this deadly slumber. By repopulating cultural space with the banished and the obliterated, writers can reassert the absolute value of individual experience in a political context, as a political context, as a roadblock to be avoided or ignored at one's own peril. But even here, the act of transmission is not innocent and must be permeated with the kind of vigilance that recognizes, as the great American poet Jack Spicer once put it, that there are bosses in poetry as well as in the industrial empire. Thank you. Samuel, now we'll hear from Michael Henry Heim. As you've heard, my field is East Central Europe, my main field, and much of my life, both private and professional, uh, coincided with the Cold War. I am by no means nostalgic for that period, that ideological climate. Uh, I went to all those countries. Uh, I put in my time there, you might say, spent time there. Uh, and I know what living in East Bloc countries meant for writers. I also know what it meant for readers. The writers uh, could be persecuted. But the readers could be, too, for having those books on their shelves. Uh, so the attitude to literature there is uh, very different from ours. Uh, Again, though, I'm not nostalgic for that forced interest in literature. Uh, on the other hand, for years I was, and actually still am, very, I guess the only word is jealous. Uh, I have envied the East European countries a, a, an institution that many of them had, 
and uh, actually uh, some of them still have under capitalist uh, conditions, of a literary magazine uh, dealing entirely with translated literature. The first one was the Russian Inestrana Literatura, foreign literature, and because of the Cold War situation, each East Bloc country cloned uh, a magazine, uh, and so we have Svetová Literatura, which means the same thing in Czech, and we have Literatura na Švecie, which means this, more or less the same thing in Polish, and Nojvilag in Hungarian, which means the wide world. They were the ones who were a little bit more uh, experimental with the title and actually a little bit more experimental with the, with the content as well. Uh, and this is a real paradox because, of course, in the Cold War, you had a situation where literature was propaganda. That's why all the money went for it. Uh, it didn't mean, however, that every work was propaganda. There were writers who were smart enough to outsmart the censors. Um, there were censors stupid enough to let themselves be outsmarted. Uh, and that held for these uh, magazines, too. There was a lot of dross in the magazine, but there were also uh, un known treasures. I say unknown from the point of view of the West because over and over again I would find that my colleagues in these supposedly benighted countries were better informed about world literature than I was. And I had university libraries at my disposal, I had um, university departments and so on, and yet these people uh, knew writers that I would find out about five years or ten years after them. Uh, we have, for example, the Times Literary Supplement. That uh, is probably the best place to go to find detailed coverage of contemporary foreign literature. Uh, it occasionally even reviews books before they've been translated. But there is no English language periodical that provides regular and, and this is the important difference, direct contact with the works themselves. There is no English language periodical uh, exclusively devoted to publishing the latest and the finest in foreign literatures. There are a few that try to cover one or another uh, area. Um, and there are a few, there may be one or two that last for an issue or two or three, and Penn is doing, I think, uh, a good job here, that tries to include uh, translated literature with literature in English. But there is no place that we or any speaker of English can go to find the best works written uh, in other languages. So what I'm proposing is a journal of literature in translation, not a journal of world literature, but a journal of literature in translation, works that have not been translated into English before. Um, the best I keep using that word, and of course, that's very problematic. I, I know that, I understand that, but um, the best according to whom, and I'll get to that, uh, of prose, poetry, and drama written in languages other than English. Um, I should let you in on the embarrassing uh, secret, I guess, that I formulated this uh, originally more than 10 years ago, uh, and I have tried to uh, move it forward, and I have not been able to, but this may be a better time uh, because it's such a bad time. Uh, the goal of the magazine would be to uh, publish works that 
have not been published before in English or are about to come out in English. In other words, it would either commission translations itself or pre-publish works that are already under contract and are about to be published in book form. Uh, its editorial board, and here we get into the good-bad issue, its editorial board would keep in touch with developments in world literature by following the major literary supplements over the world, not just the TLS, but, uh, well, Lire and so on. The, the, the major ones, the Germans have very good ones as well. Uh, Germans, of course, have wonderful daily newspaper, serious daily newspaper uh, reviews of, of uh, literature. So it's probably harder for us to find them there because they're all over the place, but they're there and they're extremely uh, sophisticated. So you'd have a, an editorial board that would keep up with the latest uh, in literature. Uh, this editorial board would, at inter uh, would attend international book fairs and literary gatherings and maintain ties with publishers uh, in the English-speaking world, but also outside the English-speaking world, uh, whose lists feature translated literature. It would choose the works uh, and the authors to be included and procure the necessary rights. It would be a very expensive undertaking. It's not something that can be done halfway. All the halfway attempts have ended, as I mentioned before, after two or three um, issues. Uh, only translations, needless to say, only translations of the highest quality would be ex uh, accepted. Each issue would contain representative prose, poetry, and drama from a number of literatures, although alternatively uh, there could be, as the uh, East European uh, models that I've been uh, referring to sometimes do, they, there could be issues devoted to uh, regional uh, literatures. Uh, but the goal here uh, is not a quick fix. In other words, the goal is not to publish uh, an Iraqi novel so that everybody can read about what's going on in Iraq and we can say, oh, now we understand Iraq. Uh, the goal is to create a, a public that is more sophisticated than the one we have now. Um, the quick fix simply doesn't work. What you have to do is raise the uh, level of uh, appreciation of literature and uh, simply of, well, I'll use that word again, uh, sophistication. Um, just a, a personal anecdote. Uh, one of the literatures that I've done a lot of work in is Czech literature. Um, and I was a, uh, spent a few summers in the 60s in Prague, uh, 65 and 66. Uh, and so I wasn't that surprised when 68 came along. Uh, in 65 and 66, I tried very hard to interest uh, New York publishers in the writers who eventually became very well-known, you, you know their names. Um, I couldn't get a rise out of anybody. Czechoslovakia simply wasn't in the news. Czechoslovakia eventually was in the news, but of course there's a two-year lead time before any work can come out, and so there was nothing to show the public in 68, 69, when uh, everybody was interested in what was going on there. Uh, it wasn't until 1970, 1971, 1972 that we had these works. Uh, but that's not what we need. Uh, that's a reaction. That's after the fact. Uh, what we have to do is prepare a public that is open to things, and I know the word now has become a dirty word, but 
foreign. I know we now use the word international, um, sometimes in very strange, almost absurd situations. But I don't see why the word foreign should be a dirty word. I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I've never felt anything uh, negative about foreign people. I'd say quite interesting. <laughs> Um, let me give you, uh, to, to conclude, let me give you uh, an idea of what an issue of one of these uh, journals, uh, magazines, looked like. I, uh, unfortunately, couldn't find uh, any of the more recent ones in our library because of budget cuts, you know about that everywhere. So I went back to uh, uh, an example of what was going on in the early 90s. Uh, and the uh, example I took was the Hungarian Nodbilak, which I mentioned before. This is a very modest volume, six by nine inches, I measured it, uh, 150 to 160 pages, no illustrations, uh, no advertising except perhaps for uh, announcements of books that are semi-advertisements, I would say. Um, and this issue featured Stories by uh, Isaac Pashevich Singer, Julio Ramon Ribeiro, Raja Rao, Franz Fuhrmann, Victor Yorfeyev. Uh, it had excerpts from novels by Martin Amos and Umberto Eco. It had poems by uh, the Romanian uh, Stefan August um, Doinas, uh, Victor Voroshinsky, uh, and a group of Irish poets. It had essays by Jürgen Habermas and Siegfried Lenz, and also Yorfeyev. Uh, there were also a few essays by uh, Hungarians about contemporary literature, what's going on in one literature or another, what genre happens to be the most uh, stylish, let's say, uh, these days, that kind of thing. Uh, this is why those colleagues of mine put me to shame so often. They had this kind of uh, background, uh, and there was no place that I could get it except from them. Um, so in conclusion, uh, I think that America can afford this kind of thing. It's expensive if it's done by uh, a commercial firm because it's not a commercial enterprise. Uh, but there ought to be a way to finance something like this. Um, it would do two things. It would, I hope, raise the consciousness of at least the people who read it. Uh, it might attract uh, more people to uh, reading foreign literature. It might uh, help ameliorate the uh, concept of the term foreign. Um, and I think that America can uh, use a little bit of consciousness raising. Uh, about 25 years ago, we had a conference uh, at UCLA uh, that brought together a lot of uh, Russian emigre writers. And uh, that was the time when they were all coming out en masse. And uh, Ashbel Green from Knopf gave a uh, presentation. We invited an editor to, to spice up the uh, proceedings. And one of the uh, writers said to him, why is it that people won't read us? Um, I've just written, this author said, you know, a novel that, that could really tell people what's going on there, and they're all reading, at that time, Gorky Park. Uh, and he said, you know, he, and the Russian writer said, 
aren't, aren't Americans interested in what goes on in, in the world? He said, oh yes, Americans are interested. They just don't want to be told about it by those damn foreigners. And I think there is some truth about that. He, he, had, um, he had statistics. His statistics were uh, the number of copies of The Woman in the Dunes by Como, uh, Kobo Abe that ha they had uh, sold at Knopf, which was 2,000. And then the number of um, copies of James, Clavel, James Clavel's Shogun that had been sold worldwide, which was you know, 37 million or something like that. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the situation that we need to work, that's the, that's the ground that we need to work up from. Uh, the other advantage of a work like this, and this is something that's come up already and I'm sure will come up again, uh, is that it would help not only our own country, although heaven knows we need that kind of help, uh, but because English is what it is today, uh, it would provide a kind of, I hesitate to use the word clearinghouse because uh, that's a little bit dangerous, but it would be at least a first showing for uh, a lot of writers to the world at large, both to the reading public, uh, whatever reading public there is in English, and then to the publishing uh, public. So that we would be doing, uh, I think, a dual service. And uh, it would be nice if we could uh, finally get together with England on a, a plane that's a little bit different from our last venture with them. This would be a, a good place to start. Thank you. Um, I come from a real island. Um, but then, as Elizabeth Bishop says, who decides? It's been quite some time since I felt much optimism about the prospects for foreign literature in English translation. But for the last few years, I've been in open despair. The 80s, in retrospect, were a kind of Bronze Age. There was still room for the kind of felicitous miscalculation that made the appearance of certain books in English possible. It seems to me these things were only ever done by mistake. The period we are now embarked on is an Iron Age, quite possibly a terminal phase. After it, we may expect a deluge, a deluge of nothing. Houses with venerable names and cosmopolitan traditions seem quite unembarrassed about putting out catalogues that are wall-to-wall -wall English language originals. Chateau and Windus, home of Chekhov, Proust and Joseph Roth, recently went through three or four seasons without any translations at all. Obviously, publishing isn't what it was. The bottom line has risen inexorably. There are all the huge and much bruited takeovers and mergers and acquisitions, but there are reasons more profound even than the state of publishing to explain why the number of foreign titles to appear in Britain is no higher than it is in Iceland. Or is it half as many? I forget. Iceland has a population of a quarter of a million, but I'm not here to tell you about Iceland. The principal factor is the size and spread of the English language which offers readers a delusive self-sufficiency. Why bother with anything else, apart from a handful of 19th century French and Russian novelists, which is the only thing that has ever really caught on, when there is so much to read in English, whether from Manchester, or Madras, or Melbourne, or Malibu Beach? Increasingly, it's only English that counts, not only in England and other English-speaking territories, but globally. 
Scores of English books get translated every year into every language under the sun, thereby wrecking the domestic market of the indigenous writers, and pitifully few come the other way. Effectively, English is running a colossal and intolerable surplus with the rest of the world. The abusive term dumping from trade talks comes to mind. This isn't good for the rest of the world, evidently, to be without its prize and its unit of measurement, its biggest potential readership, and probably its only guarantee of posterity, but nor is it good for English. The loss of the most distinguished, characteristic and classic books from other languages will finally make itself felt, however richly English is able to compensate itself from its multitudinous sources. There is really nothing like the strange by-authorship of translation. The hapless, resourceful or wooden sense of words not deployed by a single hand according to instructions from a single mind. The demands on vocabulary and less predictably on syntax that made the reading, for example, of Estimate mentioned it, of Gregory Rabassa's translation of 100 Years of Solitude, such an enlarging experience. Translation is the other. It upsets expectation. It extends the field of comparison. It forces even the sluggardly to reevaluate and recontextualize. A period of good writing has to be a period of good and abundant translating also. The fact that we're not presently living in one leads me to qualify the large claims currently being made for British, but also American, poetry and fiction. Surely a healthy, never mind an exceptional or wonderful condition, wouldn't be this sequestered or this drip-fed on parochial fashions and moods and reputations. It's undeniable that it's written in a world language, but how much of it is world literature? It's the present low level of interest in translation that prompts the question. And then I, I, I wrote some little um, krumel, little crumbs. Um, there's so much submerged pride, vanity, and shiftiness in our enterprise, one should keep some modesty too. I can get very exalted and full of myself, but I'm a foot soldier or a peasant. It only takes a little slip on the internet as when I read, by Michael Hoffman, translated by Wolfgang Köppen, to make me blush. It doesn't seem right to me to di dictate or even to propose the terms and conditions of one's own labor. One mustn't become one's own agent or barker or PR person. It's right for Hesse to say the world would be a better place if Robert Walser had 100,000 readers, um, which, which he does, so you, you have to imagine it if, it if he didn't, how awful that would be. It wouldn't be right for Robert Walser to say it, or his translator, though both might think it. If anything, I would say, modest changes are all that one would envisage. The fisherman in Grimm asking for a sausage with his first wish. A lot of the time it seems astounding to me that I'm left to do work like this at all. A little more security, a little more influence with publishers, a few more sales, a little more attention in the press, a little more, if this isn't too pathetic, understanding in general for what it is one does. This little, though, this slight adjustment, is what a society like ours finds almost impossible. It's practically extinct. You could win the lottery first. <coughs> Kant
Contracts come describing me as labour for hire, and I sign them. Efforts are made to gauge the length of the book and to pay me at a certain rate per thousand words. I'm asked to say whether a piece of writing gets longer or shorter as it goes into English from German. It gets shorter, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> Besides, even the words that don't appear will have been translated. My name appears on the cover or the title page or the copyright page, but why bother if it's only labour for hire? I try to make a difference. Is that allowed? I like to think that my books have a collective identity that adds up to an imprimatur in their choosing or in what I bring to them. The labour for hire tag seems to suppose that anyone else would do the identical job to you if your dictionaries are the same. In fact, you wouldn't do the same job two days running. I certainly wouldn't. It's a human activity, and you bring human fallibility and human distinction to it. Susan Sontag. It was uh, odd for me to hear someone, uh, uh, we're all speaking with, with a lot of uh, cloaks of irony, uh, but I will take this statement a little bit more straightforwardly perhaps than it was meant. It was odd for me just now to hear someone defending the foreign uh, saying, well, it's not really a terrible thing to be foreign, and uh, reproaching um, Americans for being resistant to the foreign. I have to say, I feel a, a bit, bit like quarreling with, with both aspects of that uh, statement, of which, of course, was not meant as any definitive statement. I do think that uh, people in this country understand that we are a nation made up of foreigners, that's our, that's our identity. Um, and of course, when people come here, they become Americans. They are no longer foreign. But I think that the notion of the foreign is very, very uh, real uh, to Americans, perhaps as something to be defeated, perhaps as something to be vanquished. Um, but of course, those of us who live in New York City, who have uh, many of us, including myself, chosen to live here, who didn't grow up here, um, I think we're all voting for uh, the foreign. Uh, this is a city of foreigners. Uh, it's a world city. It's a, it is an international city. Uh, I sometimes think when I'm particularly, feeling particularly cranky uh, about the policies of, of uh, my country or its administration or government, uh, well, at least I live in New York City, which is a big ship anchored off the coast of the United States of, of America. It's a world city. It is connected with the United States, but it's not identical with it. And what makes it particularly different is that it's full of, of uh, foreigners. Uh, but there's a, there's a kind of eternal dialectic here. We, we know we're all foreigners, and, and we experience our foreignness in different ways, and sometimes are very proud of it. It's our singleness. It's our separateness. It's our identity. And then foreign is, of course, everything else, uh, and everything else than us, and, and uh, our judgment is the privileged one. I will tell, tell you a story. Uh, some years ago, I was in 
uh, you can date this story, it has to be before 1986, and indeed it was not long before 1986. Uh, I was in uh, Stockholm for the publication of one of my books in Swedish translation, and I was offered for the first time a tour of the precincts of the Swedish Academy, which awards the Nobel Prize once a year. And I protested to my publisher that I really didn't feel like having this tour, but I was told it would be very rude to refuse it, and it was kind of an honor to be shown the great room, uh, the room where the deliberations were held and the room where the, where the ceremony was held, and the Swedish king uh, bestowed the Nobel Prize uh, for literature. And so I did indeed have the tour, and it was just as suffocating as I imagined, but I managed to be polite. It's not hard to be polite. And then at the end, I was asked by the then secretary of the Swedish Academy. Uh, he said, um, I'm going to ask you now the question that I ask every uh, well-known foreign author of my take around, uh, show the... Uh, the Swedish precincts of the Swedish Academy and the Nobel Prize uh, ceremony, Great Hall. Uh, if you could um, nominate uh, one author who has not yet received uh, the Nobel Prize, uh, who would be your choice? And I said, without missing a beat, and now you will see what the, the person I name, of course, when I said it, just a year or two before his death, uh, I said, without a second's pause, Borges, of course. And he, without missing a beat, said, oh, isn't it odd how many of you foreigners all like Borges? <laughs> and I thought, well, we foreigners, we're the rest of the world. And who are you? You're Swedes. <laughs> You're 10 million people, and we're all the rest. Uh, but he thought it was very odd that all these foreign writers uh, seemed to like Borges so much. So this eternal dialectic between us and them uh, our, our sense of complacency about the rightness of our judgment and identifying what we don't agree with as foreign. Of course, this, this goes across every sphere of feeling and cultural uh, activity. Uh, specifically to address the question of translation and why uh, there are so few translations now into English. The, this figure is indeed rather shocking, if it's true, that in many European countries, I, and I think I have this sense in reading several European languages, that something, and frequenting European bookstores, uh, that a, a large number, if not close to half, of the books translated, the literary books translated, into the principal European languages are translations, whereas I learned, I didn't think it was quite as bad as this, uh, something like 1% of the books translated, uh, of the books that appear in English are uh, translations. So why is this true? Well, first of all, I think one cannot ever underestimate the ascendancy of English as a world language. It has, as the world language, it's been mentioned several times here, it's a, it's a fact that stares us all in the face. Uh, but the consequences of it, I think, have yet to be fully uh, absorbed by us. Um, the, the title of the essay that appeared in the TLS a few months ago, which is given in the uh, little descriptions of um, the description of me uh, in the sheet that you have when identifying, identifying all of us, uh, says that um, her article, Translation as a Passport Within the Community of Literature, appeared in 
the Times Literary Supplement in, in June, and I, I confess that I puzzled over this because this title was entirely unfamiliar to me. Uh, and then I realized after uh, um, that it was the subtitle of the uh, essay, which was originally a speech called uh, an annual lecture uh, called the St. Jerome Lecture, which is given every year and which uh, emerged from the Center for Literary Translation founded by uh, Max Sebald at the University of East Anglia and the early uh, St. Jerome lectures were indeed given there. And then it was a few years ago, it was moved to London and now is given before a very large audience. It was very well attended. And that, the, the, my talk, which was then subsequently printed in the TLS, was called The World as India. That was the title I gave it and that was the, then there was the subtitle that I that the TLS editor put in, which I don't object to, but it wasn't mine. Uh, and it does indeed uh, reflect an aspect of my argument, but the main part of my argument was about how, uh, in a multilingual uh, world, one language now has become ascendant. Uh, and just as the, the language that people might have in India where do, there are dozens of languages, including 16 official languages, the language that people might have in common, would be in fact the language of the conqueror, the language of the, the colonial language. That would be the language that, would, that, that people from different parts of India uh, might use. And the Indian elite, in fact, uh, large parts of it speak mainly English and not one of the Indian languages. So I don't think you can, um, it's impossible, as far as I'm concerned, to overestimate the fact that one language, and it is the language uh, spoken by the richest and most powerful nation that has ever existed in human history, the United States of America, uh, that this is the language that we are talking about, into which this is the publishing and intellectual and educational environment um, into which large infusions of foreign literature are simply not being allowed to enter. I don't think that you can dissociate uh, the, the lack of interest in foreign translations with the uh, hegemony of English. But that, that is a point, as I say, everybody makes. I just continue to brood over it and see it as more and more powerful. But I want to introduce one further uh, idea. It's not just the hegemony of English, but I think some very particular things in American culture, a distinctive American tradition which, which uh, vaunts breaking with the past, being um, uh, innovative, uh, not being influenced, not being indebted to anyone, uh, not quoting, read Emerson, I mean, I think if you, and, and I say that as someone who adores Emerson and thinks he is one of the great minds of the 19th century, but I think you can, uh, in Emerson's great essays on experience of self-reliance and elsewhere, you will see in a very, very exalted way the essential cultural elements, ingredients, ideological ingredients of an, of an attitude which makes Americans extremely uh, disrespectful of the foreign which is identified with the past and with the old. 
from uh, Emerson, read Tocqueville, you'll see this attitude. Read D.H. Lawrence's Studies in Classic American Literature. You will see the enormous war, culture war, that is at the center of, of, of 19th century American literature, fighting with Europe, fighting with the past, fighting with being influenced, um, fighting bookishness. I don't think that it's a, a, an accident that we have certainly, I think, the most powerful anti-intellectual tradition uh, that I know of in, uh, in any uh, major uh, culture. Uh, the very notion of the best, of quality, of standards, of literature, which is itself a normative notion, is constantly being challenged in this country. I couldn't uh, agree uh, more with Michael Henry Heim and his uh, plea for a magazine devoted to literary translation. It would be my dream uh, to see such a magazine, to read it, uh, and to occasionally put in a word about what I think ought to go into it. But I think that it will, it will touch on very uh, strong prejudices which go far beyond the kind of thing that we're usually likely to acknowledge. Uh, some of you may have noticed an article in the New York Times yesterday which announces that uh, the National Book Award, there will be a National Book Award this year which will go to uh, Stephen King. And what was interesting to me uh, in, in that article, apart from the fact that I was mentioned as the antithesis of Stephen King, uh, <laughs> I think, I think I'm not the only antithesis to Stephen King, was that, in fact, he was not being defended as a creator of literature. Now, there is a case to be made out for Stephen King uh, as a writer worthy of some serious literary consideration. Um, but that was not the argument that was being made to support his being named as a recipient for this award. What was being uh, invoked there was precisely that he was a popular writer, that he was not a literary writer, that he reached a lot of people who were not interested in literature, and, and it would be snobbish of us to deny him uh, his glory and, his, and, and the merit of his anti-literary work. As I say, I think you could make a much better defense of Stephen King than was made in that article, but he was not defended as a genre writer of some literary interest. He was defended precisely because he defied and contradicted, uh, in effect, uh, snobbish standards that would have restricted true literature to a work that have appealed to a more limited audience. Whereas anyone, even children, liked Stephen King. And then that came the extraordinary reference to me, which is that more children were interested in Stephen King than in my books. Now, of course, I, I just, I don't care about children not reading my books. I care about children reading Stephen King's books, at least very young children, but that's a moral and not a literary concern. Anyway, I would not, underestimate the extent to which a very vigorous anti-literary and anti-intellectual standard is at the center of American culture. Uh, Americans are constantly quarreling with the notion of the best, of the masterpiece, of the work that you ought to read. Uh, this has gotten new reinforcement uh, from various uh, political factions, both on the right and on the left. 
uh, American moralism is very often at war with the idea of quality or excellence or achievement. I think, in other words, there are some distinctive, if we're going to talk about the politics of translation and what makes for the fact that someone can say Americans yawn at translations, uh, I think we have to look at some very specific aspects of American resistance to the idea of excellence, uh, achievement, quality, standards, literature as a normative, as a normative notion, which I believe that it is. Thank you. And now Steve Wasserman. I want to continue the conversation partly where Susan left off. Uh, I would like to reiterate uh, in the strongest possible way, and I speak somewhat from the, no, not even somewhat, I speak entirely from within, as Jose Marti once put it, from within the bowels of the monster. Uh, one could not overemphasize the um, coarsening effect of a very vigorous and unseemly anti-intellectual tradition uh, and a deep-seated and very coarse egalitarian ethos that uh, is suspicious of any uh, hierarchy of talent and which seeks to uh, hold hostage such notions to the, uh, and to hammer it against the crucifix of commerce uh, in ways that have uh, seriously deformed at least what the review publications, as they are presently constituted, those few of them that actually exist in most newspapers, who, which doggedly refuse, for the most part, to report the news of works from other cultures and other languages and other lands, partly because there's a deep-seated suspicion of any names that look like bottom lines of eye charts. But it also um, uh, has to do with a, a very uh, serious suspicion of the foreign, so at least as, uh, uh, just to extend the conversation that's uh, been begun here. It may be, of course, that uh, New York, well, it's without a doubt New York, Manhattan uh, is, is an island, uh, and its proximity to Europe has given it a, 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 a relation to the foreign which mistakes it for the common, but it's also the case uh, that the measure of being an American, at least as commonly understood, if not so explicitly stated, has to do with the rapidity with which one sheds one's attachment to the foreign and assimilates uh, a more hoary notion of what it means to be an American. Now, these are very old, as Susan has pointed out, very old uh, notions in American history. I mean, I think of, just to cite one example, I think of Mark Twain's amusing but... Um, uh, an unhappy piece called The Awful German Language, in which at the end of which he volunteers his services to the German government and assures them that within six weeks of his, of his consultation that he will straighten everything out and verbs will no longer appear at the ends of sentences. <laughs> and that readers will know where they're going from the get-go. <laughs> there is a kind of American attachment to plain spokenness which is in its interstices is uh, deeply suspicious of the way in which those other people talk. Why, if they had something serious to say, well, why can't they just do it in English? Why do they have to conceal it 
within within the uh, the the refuge of a, a language which is clearly in decline. All these languages, and it is quite uh, and the suspicion that the destiny of the United States and its empire would one day come to rule much of the world, and if not all of the world, at least relegate uh, to areas of such marginality as no longer to be particularly significant, there would be no need to uh, indulge uh, the taste uh, either for pleasure or for a more utilitarian notion, the taste for these other languages. And so one arrives at the, at the paradox that uh, Joel Canaro uh, so eloquently uh, retailed at the beginning of this evening's uh, talks, in which you have the paradox of a totalizing um, metropolis country whose economy is ever more entangled with the economy and the fates of peoples the world over, but whose own people is ever more rendered parochial and provincial. Um, it's really quite astonishing. Uh, aside from the sheer pleasure and ardor uh, of, of, of the aesthetic embrace of other ways of thinking uh, and other, other cultures, there is a utilitarian aspect, of course, that um, uh, America probably ignores at its peril, and it's perhaps uh, the case that after 9-11, the greatest impetus for the uh, subsidizing of translations will be out of the self-interest uh, that the Central Intelligence Agency uh, will, will recognize. I'm reminded of this because recently, oh, a few weeks ago in the uh, Times Literary Supplement in, in London, there was a, quite an interesting piece uh, um, by um, Gerard uh, Prunier, uh, one of the great French experts on, on uh, the Central Lakes region in Africa. He was reviewing a book called the Great Lakes of Africa, 2,000 Years of History, which had appeared originally in, in France uh, in three years ago, but which has now made its way into English in a relatively brief period of time, published by Zone Books. And he ends his, his uh, informative and, and altogether compelling review by making the observation that uh, some years ago he found himself at an international symposium uh, on Uganda, and uh, at the end of one of his presentations, uh, as he describes it, an American colleague came up to him and said, that was, a, that was really an interesting talk. Uh, you really should write a book about this. And he found to his embarrassment that he had to explain to the man that, in fact, he had authored 30 articles and a book on Uganda, but alas, since French, once a world language, had now been relegated to a minor dialect, uh, they had never been translated into English. Um, the responsibility for the state of affairs, uh, the major elements of it have been well uh, observed by the other panels. I want to speak just for a moment uh, about what I know to be, uh, but which is too little denounced, uh, the scandal uh, and, the, uh, and the responsibility that, um, that people like myself who are in positions of commissioning uh, reviews of books in other languages for the American press bear for this state of affairs. It's really quite a scandal um, that so few, I mean, I find to, somewhat to my surprise, I'm not entirely surprised given my disposition and interest, but uh, I'm told, I'm informed by the American Association for Translators that the Los Angeles Times Book Review has, in fact, run more reviews of works in translation. Uh, I don't go out seeking to do this. It's just that it seems to me some of the most interesting work being written that makes its way to my desk appears to have been written originally in another language. And it seems to me that my obligation 
uh, the obligation of a newspaper is to bring to readers the news of that which they haven't already heard of. What would be the point in giving to you the news of the thing that you already know, the thing that's already on the best seller list? Uh, it seems to me a complete abdication of the responsibility of a, of a reviewing mechanism to avoid uh, such works somehow on the basis of of whether it, it will sell very much or will be of interest to a small or large number of people. That seems to me uh, as if it would be to say, and perhaps it could be said, that uh, the front page of a newspaper avoids giving you the news of a coup in East Timor because it believes, or its foreign editor believes, that um, very few Americans are actually going to want to ever visit East Timor. So why would they uh, be interested in such a place? Well, as we, as we know, and as we have uh, lived through, um, uh, the dots are all connected, uh, is that, it, that we ignore all these places uh, at, at our peril. Besides which, one, think, think of this just as a matter of pride. Uh, in the early years of the last century, uh, if you'd been, say, the, I don't know, the editor of a major newspaper, let's say the Times of London. And you had heard distantly that there was this, this man who was calling himself a psychiatrist and he had, he'd, he'd written a book with a rather fascinating title called The Interpretation of Dreams. And yes, there was only a first edition of a few thousand copies, um, but it had come to your attention and you had a limited amount of space and it was a choice between either reviewing Freud's interpretation of dreams which maybe yet had not even made its way into English, but which nonetheless some antennae had, had suggested to you that it was of enormous importance, or might go on to be a work of enormous importance. I mean, after all, presumably that's why they hired you to be the literary editor, because of some intuit, intuitive sense of, of the thing that would be interesting, the thing that would be curious, the thing that would go on to last and would be, would be news. And, or you had, the, uh, you had to make a choice between that or perhaps well, the latest work of the best-selling author of the day whose works would be forgotten. Which would you choose? How would you want to be remembered? Well, the obvious answer for me is you'd go for Freud, but I assure you you would have a devil of a time trying to convince your minders at the Times of London that you should favor this obscure Viennese psychiatrist who as yet few people had heard of and ignore um, the, the latest work of uh, whatever Stephen King was then, was then uh, uh, publishing uh, his, his works. It seems to me as part of the, the food chain or the politics of translation, uh, it's, it, it, it a little bit uh, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If works go unreviewed and unspoken about, how will readers some readers know that they exist. Now, in these matters, one could choose, and on alternate Wednesdays, I do choose to be a bit of a Leninist in these matters, better, fewer, but better, taking some solace in the historical fact that uh, even a very important or very often very important works uh, one day do find their audience. Czeslaw Miloš's The Captive Mind, for instance, was originally published in 1953 by Alfred A. Knopf. Um, it, uh, went on to sell a robust 2,300 copies over the next five or six years. Uh, nonetheless, its author, as everyone knows, would one day uh, go on to win the Nobel Prize and whose works uh, have had incalculable, uh, uh, an, uh, an utterly uh, incalculable uh, effect on uh, the mentality and, and intellectual formation of people who've all over the world. Um, nonetheless, it's, it is a perilous moment 
we should give support and praise to those few presses under siege themselves, whether it's Northwestern University Press or other university presses that while subsidized themselves, have nonetheless become uh, repositories of works in translation. We should certainly act to try to shame the commercial houses into commissioning uh, more of them. Of course, translators uh, deserve to be paid a living wage. Of course, a magazine, as, as Michael Henry Heim, uh, deserves to uh, exist. But I, I, I do think that it's a that we are going against the grain. We should not underestimate the short-sightedness of uh, of the bottom line overseers, and nor should we underestimate the difficulty of reversing uh, the, cultural, um, uh, the cultural weight of the deep-seated American suspicion of the other and the deep-seated, as Susan I think rightly says, and we should call these things by their rightful names, a deep-seated anti-intellectual uh, tradition, which sa I'm sad to report, and it is no news to anybody who reads the press, is alive and well in America's newspapers. I'd like to begin our discussion just by throwing out a, a question to the panelists. Um, in listening to all of you speaking, uh, I was led to reflect on the way in which uh, political upheaval seemed to be one of the very few things that can make a dent uh, in this sort of a brick wall, a brick bubble that surrounds American culture. Michael Heim alluded to uh, uh, Prague Spring in 1968, which then led to a, a, an increased interest in Czech literature. Uh, of course, in the 80s, the Cold War, the, the Bronze Age of translation, as Michael Hoffman remembers it, the Cold War was still existing, and the Cold War was, of course, an impetus for a lot of translation. Um, and wars have also given rise to translators, uh, William Weaver, uh, went to Italy as a uh, conscientious objector, actually. It drove an ambulance and became uh, the great translator of Italian literature. Donald Keene went to Tokyo, uh, became a great translator as a GI, and became a translator of uh, Japanese. So there are many ways in which political upheavals contribute to uh, uh, counteracting the effects of uh, anti-intellectualism <coughs> and things like that. And I'm, I'd like to ask all the panelists, do you see any such result happening as a result of September 11? Uh, we're obviously overlooking a view that is different than it was several years ago, and um, I can't help asking the question. Just make a comment. Um, that may have been true of the Second World War, but it certainly has not been true, it seems to me, of more, more recent wars that the United States is engaged in. Uh, instead of liter translated literature, we've gotten restaurants. Um, Vietnam War led to many re restaurants. Uh, you know, the, the horrors of the, of the Central uh, America in the 80s led to a number of very good Salvadoran and Guatemalan restaurants uh, in Washington, D.C. and in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Very little of the literatures of those places have been translated. I live in a city, Los Angeles, which has the greatest number of Koreans living in it outside of Seoul, Korea, and I assure you uh, that uh, I, I do not think, I could be wrong, uh, but I wonder, it's not come to my attention at any rate, um, what are the uh, Korean writers uh, who are being translated and, and read? We know n virtually nothing of the preoccupations and the curiosities, the enthusiasms and the passions of a very large number of people who live in our midst, not to mention the numerous other patchwork quilt of uh, people from elsewhere who now, of course, are trying to make a life for themselves and their families 
in America. Anybody else? Uh, I would just, my only comment would be that, you, you know, you simply can't remove any of this stuff from the strictly political context. And, you know, space only harbors so much stuff in it. And if it's filled by other stuff, it's going to be very difficult to get, to get anything into it. I mean, even in the case of, there, there were, you know, there was some effort to translate, for instance, Central American stuff, but with very small presses, with very little resonance, partially because of the nature of the work, had a had a more uh, you know clearly political uh, edge to it, and so it was not. We have very we, we don't have much of a vocabulary to deal with that kind of work. You know, if it doesn't appear in a certain kind of uh, you know if there isn't a certain kind of technique to the writing, we have a very hard time dealing with the, what appears to be a conventional narrative that might come out of some very particular s political situation. So I think that one really can't, and in terms of the present, I think, you know, the space is really occupied by enormous amounts of, you know, what can really only be called disinformation of various sorts, which really take up the space for other things that does not get in there regarding the Middle East, for instance. So I am not very particularly hopeful in, in, in the sense of anything really happening. Um, I guess my second question is, is somewhat more abstract. Um, it seems to me that, uh, and, and this relates more to what Michael Hoffman was saying, um, there, there is a certain resistance uh, to the idea of literature as a performative art, as a, as a performing art. Uh, the translator practices literature as a performing art. Um, and yet, uh, we, can, we can easily think of, of Beethoven and, a, a, and the pianist who is performing Beethoven, and we can hold both of those thoughts uh, in our mind at the same time without feeling that we're somehow not getting the real Beethoven or missing out in some terrible way. Um, but somehow when it comes to literature and the way that we experience literature, we can't seem to hold those two thoughts in our mind at the same time. We can't seem to uh, countenance the fact that we are both reading a Joseph Roth and Michael Hoffman's performance of Joseph Roth. Um, and I, I wonder why that is. Um, so can anyone tell me? <laughs> well, I don't think it is a performing art. I think it's a false question. I mean, I think the fact is that we, except for people who have a very special interest, you generally are only reading one translation. Whereas, uh, I, I don't, uh, uh, if you are, if you like music, you are very likely to hear a number of performances of the same work. You're not likely to read a number of of uh, translations of the same work unless you are a specialist in this or writing your PhD or teaching it or whatever. So I, I, I don't think it's a useful analogy. I, uh, I think we, we, uh, we there are many translations, of course. If you are particularly interested in a work, you will read several translations. But I don't I don't see the the, the comparison. At all, I don't think I don't think of the original as a score, which is then performed by translations. I don't I don't feel I'm sorry that that takes you a place which illuminates anything. It's just I think you're just banging into a, a, a kind of false comparison that that uh, translation is one thing and there is an original text and then there are the ways in which it is translated into other languages for people who don't read the original language. But I don't think of that as a performance. I just, I, uh, oh, I just yeah. I'd actually, 
I like the analogy, and I take a little bit of issue in that. I think it has a little bit with how we think about writing as writers. I mean, it, it seems to me writers who don't know other languages are like painters who are operating you know, with three colors. And I, I, I think the analogy is very apt. And I think that if one doesn't exercise, I, I think what Michael was saying, it's a kind of, you know, um, it's a kind of exercise of the language. It's a, it's a way that the language expands. And a language will really, will really corrode and wither and stultify if it's not being fed somehow by a variety of things. And, and translation, I think, can often play that performative role. Um, I'd like to look at it from a different point of view. Um, and we've been talking about uh, fear of translation, maybe, uh, on the part of the American public and, and anti-intellectualism. But there's also a very intellectual, maybe pro or super intellectual uh, prejudice against translation. Uh, as something that simply can't work. Uh, and you hear a lot of that. I uh, once taught a course on Czech literature uh, at Harvard and asked the students why they came to the course. Uh, because I was a visiting professor and I had no real feeling about the culture there. Uh, and each one of them told me, and I noticed that there was nobody from the English department. There was one person who was majoring in English, but she was from Barnard, and she was visiting. Uh, <laughs> and I asked her, uh, did she have any idea of why there weren't any people here? And she said, oh, yes, yes, yes. What they are told in the English department, this was 1985, I think, uh, is that you don't read anything in translation, because if you're reading it in translation, you're not reading the, art the, uh, the, the real article. You're not reading the author. You're reading uh, an imitation. You're reading a counterfeit. Uh, and of course, these are people who presumably didn't know, I mean, let's hope that they've read the Bible and, and didn't know Hebrew and didn't know Greek, let's hope that they've read, you know, and so on and so forth. But they can say it with a straight face, uh, and there is that prejudice that we have to uh, get past as well. And that, that's actually what I was referring to, um, the notion that a translation is a suspect because it is not the original, uh, it cannot be the original, and therefore we should just uh, eschew it and not read translations at all because it's this sort of debased, I will return to the word performance of the text rather than the real thing. Um, but, but excuse me, the Bible, nobody in America refuses to read the Bible because it's a translation. I don't, where is this attitude? Maybe in, among certain people who have been miseducated in universities. Uh, I mean, everyone reads the Bible. Excuse but you, me. You've also heard people say, if, if English is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Right. Was it, there was the famous governor of Texas who said, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for the good people of the state of Texas. Do any of you have questions for each other? All right, uh, then let's open it to the floor. Yes? I just wanted to inject uh, what I think is your minor note of good news and what seems to be an extremely gloomy prognosis. Um, in that, in fact, as Esther knows, next Tuesday, a 